The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, we have one of my very, very, very favorite guests. He's been on with us about four times, and we'll have him on at least 10, 15, 20 more times because he is the best, and he is a wonderful person and an incredible privacy expert. We're going to be speaking tonight with Dr. Larry Poneman. He's a pioneer in the development of privacy audits, privacy risk management, and ethical information management. He's the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute. Based upon his vast experience in the fields of corporate governance, privacy compliance, data protection, and business ethics, he consults with leading multinational organizations on global privacy management programs. Larry Poneman was appointed to the Advisory Committee for the Privacy for the United States Federal Trade Commission and two California State Task Forces on Privacy and Data Security Laws. Dr. Larry Poneman was recently appointed by the Governor of Arizona to serve as a public member of the State Board of Optometry. He has held and chaired faculty positions at Babson College and SUNY Binghamton, and he's published dozens of articles and five learned books. He's a frequent media commentator on privacy and other business ethics topics for CNN, Fox News, CBS, CNBC, MSNBC, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, Financial Times, Business 2.0, Newsweek, Businessweek, U.S. News and World Report, so many more. Fortune Magazine, CFO Magazine, Red Herring, Dow Jones News, and many, many others. And his research studies are really incredible. They are very well respected. There is news about them constantly in the paper. I'm so thrilled to always be able to read those. He has had a profound impact on the manner in which corporations are changing their approach to important privacy and data protection issues. There's so much more I could talk about, Larry, but you can find out more about him at the website, www.poneman, that's P-O-N-E-M-O-N.org. And also we have a lot more about him on our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And you can hear our other interviews with him as well. Just click on the archived interviews or download them as podcasts. We have a bunch of wonderful recent surveys that we're going to be talking about with Larry. And Larry, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Michigan. Mari, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm just so delighted to be here. Well, you know what? You are always so incredible. I mean, I learn so much from you all the time, and I'm so pleased that you have me as one of your Poneman fellows as well. That's a, a treat. distinguished fellow of the Poneman Institute, and, and it's our honor and delight. Thank oh, you. Well, you are the best, and so is Susan. She's terrific. You're both great. I had a good time reading, and I was fascinated by some of these new recent studies. So let's start out with the human factor and laptop encryption sure. and the U.S. study. You had a, a couple of them. Let's, how widespread is the use of encryption on laptops today? 
Well, the good news, more and more organizations are using encryption. They're not actually using one type of encryption. They're using multiple methods. For example, a common method is a whole disk encryption product. For example, vendors like PTP and others provide this. And this particular tool makes it very easy for end users to encrypt their entire laptop. It's excuse the term, but it's idiot-proof because encryption is actually one of those technologies that requires a PhD. But this is a technology that when you turn on your computer and when you shut it off, it basically turns on an encryption algorithm, and things are pretty safe. So that's definitely a tool that a lot of organizations are currently using, and many organizations that are kind of in the decision-making process will probably implement a whole disk encryption solution for laptops in the not-too-distant future. Right, you know, because we have these security breach notification statutes that I think that um, one of the things that's important, for example, with the California law, if you have a security breach of sensitive information and the information was encrypted, then the corporation doesn't have any any duty to notify the people whose information was in there because it's all encrypted. It's, It's scrambled. You can't read it. So that was kind of a a big push to make companies more aware so that they would start using such things as laptop encryption. Because I know in your studies, you've you've found that there's so many laptops that are stolen or lost, and those are the security breach, right? Exactly. Exactly right. I mean, if you think about one of the the ways of uh, creating a data breach for your company is lose your laptop. You know, 50 or 60% of all laptops contain business confidential or sensitive information, and many of those contain records of customers and employees and shareholders and all sorts of people. So if it's not encrypted, you're probably obligated to provide some form of data breach notification. And think about from the other side, when you notify, you create a, a hornet's nest because the lawyers and class action litigators are paying attention to that detail. You have regulators that become concerned about the issue, and you also lose brand value and reputation because if you're not protecting the privacy and the information about your customers, you're probably not a trustworthy organization, at least in the minds of many consumers. Exactly. In fact, we're going to talk in a few minutes about the costs, the the monetary costs of data breaches. So this is all interrelated. So let's talk about when a laptop is encrypted. What did you find? Are people more or less careful about other security measures? What did you find out from that study? Well, this is kind of an interesting study. Here I'm singing the praises of encryption, but what we also find is that there's the infamous human element or the human factor. People look for convenience, and obviously if you have some forms of encryption, take a little bit of time and effort, may require a password that's a little bit more than we can remember, and you have to manage keys. And so people are obviously doing an end run around their their laptop computer. And if the company thinks that that laptop is encrypted because the tool is on the device, right, the encryption is on the laptop, they may be overestimating the level of protection that the company currently has. And so what we found in this study is a lot of end users really aren't using their encryption tool, even if they have it on their laptop. They're not using it to the company's maximum advantage. We're seeing uh, dysfunctional behavior like uh, some employees turning it off or disconnecting the encryption or overestimating just how secure that encryption is because it may apply only to a part of the disk or a part of the processing that they currently do. So we actually find that some organizations are using encryption but in ways that are not necessarily efficient and actually create sometimes more risk because the company tends to over-rely on the fact that they have encrypted devices. So it's a big problem. Right. I think that was what was so interesting is when you asked the question, you know, uh, of the, you, when you surveyed the employees and the IT people and you asked them how, how, how well did they know whether their encryption policy is being followed, that right. was amazing too. Yeah, it was kind of interesting that you see a lot of IT security people out of touch with the rank-and-file employee. The IT security person would say, well, hey, you know, we have a policy. And, of course, everyone who could read the policy is going to comply with the policy. And the end user says, yeah, maybe there's a policy, but I probably didn't read it. And even if I read it, I'm probably not going to worry too much about it until I get caught. 
So end users, and that's the focus, right? I mean, it's not about the IT security person losing his or her laptop, although that does happen on occasion, but it's about that end user like a sales and marketing person with tons of customer information or an HR person or an accountant with financial information. It's the end users that really are messing up. Yeah, you know, Larry, I remember uh, two years ago when my own uh, premier banker had lost her laptop that was in, actually her laptop was stolen out of the back of her car and, and my stuff was in there. So yeah, it's the end users. And what shocked me when I read this study is you had here 56% of business managers have disengaged their laptop's encryption solution. Right, and, or, or other security yeah. um, applications. So for example, you know, you you're having difficulty receiving a, a, a large attachment in email, mm-hmm. and you see that it's, you know, wow, it's going through this email filter, so it's taking too long, so I'm just going to disconnect it, and you forget to turn it back on. <sighs> it's basically the shortcut, the inconvenience of security causes the end user to do things that are dysfunctional for his or her company. And it's a, and it's a problem that goes well beyond encryption, although we see that behavior with certain encryption tools. You would think that they'd come up with software that would give you uh, an option to say, can we, can you just, you know, uh, release it just for this, you know, attachment and then give them a buzzer or something to remind them, put it back on, put it back on and you'll be fired. (laughs) You know, know, you think that (laughs) someone would, would be able to create an easy device that says, okay, this is a risk. You know, it's, it's, you're at an orange level, you know, like the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, you're at right. red, you're at orange, you're at yellow. Right, right. But, but I don't think people think this way. They basically feel that it's not going to happen to them. It's like the backing up of our laptop. A lot of people don't back up. The laptop crashes and we lose information. And this happens over and over and over again because people just assume that they're safe until it's too far. You know, they, they step over the proverbial line when they find themselves in an insecure place. And, we, and so that's what really the study was all about, specifically the human factor and how people are doing an end run, even when the device contains encryption software and very good encryption software. You know, Larry, a couple of years ago, I did this program. Well, it was actually last year uh, at this data protection conference, and we called it the human factor and security breaches. And that's exactly it. Yeah. You could have the best technology, but if you're not explaining the policy, if you're not showing your staff how to use it, if you're not enforcing that policy, it's worthless. What are some of the things that you, you know, we have a lot of people who are driving by who own businesses. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're on the campus of the University of California. So we have people who are in the business school what should people be doing? Because you've learned this, that you've got this great technology and it's not being used. What are some of the suggestions that you have? Well, I think that first thing that an organization needs to do is basically educate people. And I, although it seems like a, a, such an easy step, right, getting out there and talking about security and helping people to understand what their responsibility is, I think a lot of organizations kind of give the training lip service, the training that exists is at such a high level of abstraction, or it's just not done very well. So I think training becomes number one, awareness becomes very important, and then monitoring people and showing that you mean what you say, that if an employee does something like disconnect their security settings or disengage their encryption, that they're going to get into trouble when they're caught. So a lot of organizations you know, talk about it, but they don't actually execute the business process that underlies good security. In terms of technologies, a lot of organizations, quite frankly, they have um, almost an abundance of technology, but they aren't implementing the technologies in ways that are convenient or beneficial to the organization. So people, for example, on the business unit side view security as a problem. It's like, oh, God, the people that say no, the people in (laughs) information security, if I come to them with a problem, they're going to say no, or you're fired. So we try to do an end run around these people or, 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 you know, not pay attention to them until we get into trouble. Or they that's talk the to us or they talk to us in a way that we don't understand what they're saying. You know? Yeah, that's the other <laughs> side of the equation, right? I mean you have these guys who are talking in blue you know, some other language, Mandarin Chinese perhaps. Right, but, right. but it's very, very hard for the average user to understand why this is important 
and also for the security people to create a method of communicating in clear language that we can all understand. And so it's got to be user-friendly. Yeah, it's got to be user-friendly, too. Do you know what I mean? It has yeah. to be something where you teach me, I practice it, and then I go, oh, well, this is pretty easy. I can make it routine. But I think that's the problem when, when you get into a glitch and then it doesn't become easy. You don't feel like putting it back on. Yeah, and we really don't know. I mean, there's some issues that happen because the security people think they've created a kind of the, the invisible Band-Aid. At, case in point, if you are running a Microsoft-based laptop computer, you're going to get updates, and they're going to download, and you're going to get it at a time where, you know, maybe you're, you're busy and you don't want to have to exit your system and then reboot and get back on. And so we forget about these things. And although they're invisible, sometimes it creates a little bit of uncertainty about what are we getting and what kind of problem is it helping me solve. Sometimes we'll get tools. Like for example, Microsoft is great at providing all sorts of wonderful tools, but many of the end users don't understand what they have and what they can use. So there just needs to be a greater level of awareness for the average user who doesn't have a Ph.D. in information science or computer science. Exactly, which leads us to actually the data breach. So when they're not using the encryption and they're not using all the security tools and, and they go through the line at the airport and I, you know, I was <laughs> yesterday, I was just there. So there. I'm not, and, and I'm seeing these laptops going through and I'm seeing people stopped and I'm seeing people rushing around and it's easy for someone to just pick up another laptop right there, you know, because yeah, you're, sure you're back there because you've forgotten you've got something in your pocket and you have to go through the line again, the security. Meanwhile, your stuff is going off and somebody picks it up and runs down through the airport. Well, so, and, it, and it happens to the best of us. I, I have my own laptop story, and I'm not sure I shared this with you last no, year. No, uh uh-uh. Well, this happened to me, and I probably shouldn't admit it to the millions of people who are listening, but it happened to me. But you're I, human. I, you have the human factor, the Larry <laughs> Poneman factor. <laughs> but I was rushing to catch a flight. It was the last flight back to my home in Traverse City, Michigan. And, you know, this is one of these places where you're lucky to get one commercial flight a year. So I was trying to get on the last flight to my home, and it was in O'Hare Airport, and I'm rushing. And, of course, I'm carrying too many bags, right? I have my briefcase, my laptop bag, um, some other bag, my garment bag, whatever it is. I just had, like, too many. And it was illegal because I'm sure that you're only supposed to carry two bags. I probably had eight. So um, I have to take my shoes, I have to take off my belt buckle, I have to, you know, and all of this is going on, and I have five minutes to get through security. Mm. I put down my laptop, I get to the other side, I put my laptop in my bag, I'm starting to walk really quickly to the gate, and someone starts yelling at me, hey, you, you're stealing my computer. Uh Actually, I didn't know he was yelling at me, I just thought it was someone yelling. And of course, I turned around, and he was yelling at me. And as I walked back, I realized I took his computer. Oh, my God. It was exactly the same <laughs> computer as mine, except he put his business card at the bottom, you know, so it was clearly not my computer. And I po- apologized to him. I thought he was going to punch me in the nose, by the way. Oh, my God. I thought I was a criminal. <laughs> and I probably looked like a criminal carrying all those bags and knapsacks and everything else. But the moral of that story is, if I didn't turn around or if he didn't catch the mistake, I would have lost my laptop computer. Now, of course, I had encryption and, you know, encryption, excuse me, and I had some security tools that would keep me mildly safe. But I don't want that information. I don't want that laptop out of my custody. I don't want someone potentially breaking into that. And I think for a lot of us, our laptop contains our life. So it's a big problem. Yes, yes. And so you did get yours, thank Oh, I did get it back. Oh, thank goodness. And it's safe, and now I chain it to my arm. And and now do you also have your business card on it or something on there? Well, you know, it's funny. I thought it was a great idea to put a business card on it, and then a friend of mine who works for the FBI, she, uh, she said, you know, if you put your business card on it, um, someone might be looking for a laptop from, a, say, if you work for a, like a professional services organization, yeah, like a yeah, law firm yeah. or an accounting firm. You know, maybe those are a little bit more valuable than a laptop from Larry Poneman right. Institute. So a business card may not be a good idea, but a label or something that differentiates your laptop from another laptop. Exactly. You know, color, you know, pink, a pink bow. <laughs> well, you know, Lloyd put in big red, you know, permanent ink on his because we have the same laptop and ours could be confused. Yep. So his just says LD, 
you know, <laughs> in big red letters on it. So if he goes through, he knows that's his. Well, I also know that Dell now allows you to do all sorts of, you, know, you can customize your color and you can put a picture and you can do a whole bunch of things. So it's probably expensive. So if you're a company and you're basically trying to outfit a couple of hundred thousand people with a laptop computer, it may not be an economically, it might be better to do what Lloyd does. <laughs> but but it seems like there are ways to differentiate your laptop so it doesn't look like the same old laptop, the yeah. same old Dell. That somebody can old... pick up at O'Hare Field. <laughs> yeah, O'Hare. <laughs> what an airport. Oh, goodness. So let's talk about the cost of a data breach. You know, you know here, somebody, okay, you're, you know, your laptop is stolen as you're going through the airport. What does it mean to your company? How, how does the cost of a data breach today compare with the previous years? That you, I know you've done studies f- yeah. four times already. Yeah, we, we, we've done this study as a research annual, and it's a really cool study because what we do is we actually go to organizations that experience a data breach, and we do a very deep dive. We actually do something called activity-based costing. It's kind of your worst nightmare, right? It's like accounting. But we basically go in, and using an accounting model, we try to determine with precision the costs associated with the data breach from the initial detection of the breach to dealing with irate customers or employees whose data might be lost or stolen. And what we find each and every year is it's going up. And it's not inflation. It's going up because people care deeply about a data breach. And it's interesting. I was at a meeting many years ago when the concept of data breach was first created, and there were some of us that believed that data breach will be like a Graham Leach Bliley notice or a privacy policy that no one reads or even cares about. The idea is that, you know, if you get enough of these, you're going to start worrying about it unless you become an identity theft, you know, as a uh, victim, victim as a result. Right. Uh-huh. But we find that people still care deeply about a data breach. It's different than a privacy policy or a notification as required by your bank. Um, we find that organizations are not particularly great at, at, at notifying people or communicating the issue, but when people understand what's going on, they, they are concerned, and it does cause them to lose confidence and trust in the organization that's generating the, the notification. Yeah. So what are the key elements of those costs? Well, the, the, the big cost, the number one cost is the, I call it the, the business opportunity loss. And there are three parts to that cost. Number one, there's the cost of um, basically losing customers. Customers will say, you know, hey, you lost my data, (laughs) and or it's stolen. You didn't protect me, so I'm not going to continue, you know, using you as my bank, or I'm not going to continue using you as my telephone company. So the way an individual protests is by churn or by leaving. Um, it's sometimes hard to leave a bank, but it's a lot easier to leave, say, a retailer or a, 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 a telephone company. But even if you, if you don't leave your bank, you may actually find another bank as your primary financial services institution. So your, your, your business actually starts to diminish. We find that abnormal churn can be pretty significant. It could be millions and millions of dollars of lost economic opportunity because you're losing not only a customer for a day, but you're losing that customer for a lifetime. It's the lifetime value that you're not getting from that customer. And that customer has friends. And that customer customer might say, you know, I would never use that bank again. Do you believe they lost this? They didn't, you know, their letter wasn't real clear. I don't even know what they lost. They didn't do much for me. I wouldn't go to that bank. Why don't you go to my bank? Myra, you're so smart because that's exactly what happens, right? It's like every, people won't talk about certain things. Like, for example, if we get, Chipped. Right. <laughs> we, we spend too much for an automobile. I don't know. People don't like to talk about that. It's kind of like embarrassing. Like, Especially oh if you got it cheaper. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Like, how much did you pay for your whatever? Oh, my God. But, but people do talk about data breach. They actually discuss it, and they talk about how they felt and the letter and the communication. And, and so there's a spillover, and that's a second cost. It's not the people who are getting the notification – but those people will talk to others or will be in the media. And so there's a second hit on the company's reputation, and that could be very costly as well. And I said there were three categories. The third category is the acquisition cost of new customers goes up pretty substantially in some cases because of the reputation hit. It costs more for the company to go out and recruit new customers. So the sum of those costs is a huge cost in some cases 
especially for financial service companies, healthcare companies, pharmaceutical companies, companies in heavily regulated industries. And what about the cost of actually notifying and dealing with that? Well, that's an interesting question. In fact, I have a meeting with the Federal Trade Commission on this um, in about a week. And the idea is, is notification cost simply the cost of taking a letter, stuffing it in an envelope, and slapping on a stamp? Because some companies still think, well, what's that cost? It's like a (laughs) dollar. It's $2. But it takes a lot of effort to know who to notify. There's a lot of forensic work that goes into the process in order to create a proper list. And obviously, you don't want to over-notify because if you over-notify, you're going to be talking to people who actually you don't, they don't need to worry about the issue, but then they're going to get the letter, and they're going to fall into that category of abnormal churn. So you're going to lose business that way. So you have to it's, – it's a balancing act. And but, how about but, this? You know, how about afterward when they get the letter and then they have to give a toll-free number, right? Right. And then they give the toll-free number and then they spend hours talking on the phone trying to explain things and then people get upset because maybe the people that they've hired to explain don't really know enough to explain. Has, <laughs> has that ever happened to you, by yeah. the way? Did you ever try these toll-free numbers? Uh, I yes. did. Yes. I did. Terrible. So, oh, it's terrible. Well, my, my experience, I, I'm, I'm a uh, data breach victim probably for the 10th time. I, I think I've received <laughs> at least at least five, yep. so something north of five. But I, I, was, um, I received a, a, the, the notification from the Veterans Administration. Mm-hmm. I'm a veteran, and I received it, and I read it, and there was a number to call, and I, I just wanted to figure, you know, see how good they are. Are they doing a good job? And when I contacted the number, I was on hold for probably about an hour and 45 minutes. Oh, my God. I just, and, and there was no music, by the way, so it was not even like a pleasant <laughs> hour and 45 minutes, but it became principal for me. I mean, the, the, a normal person wouldn't wait an hour and 45 minutes, but I decided I was going to be brave. But they, they made every mistake in the book, but then they realized they'd made a big mistake, and they put a lot of resources as an organization and trying to overcome that. And so it turns out that I think the Veterans Administration learns a lot of really valuable lessons, and they now have become a poster child for an organization that did a turnaround, that actually now is viewed as a good privacy citizen. So from a negative became at least, you know, the outcome is one positive. Well, there was so much of an outcry that they had to. And and they also had a subsequent breach. So, you know, they, they really had to learn from it. But we're speaking with one of my very favorite, wonderful people who is one of the premier privacy experts in the world, and he is the CEO and the founder of the Poneman Institute, which is an institute dedicated to advancing responsible information management practices that positively affect privacy and data protection in business and government. And Larry has, I'm so thrilled that he's on our little radio show because he has already been on every national television show and radio show. And he's been in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, everything you can possibly think of because his work is just really on the leading edge. And I think he is wonderful and I'm thrilled to have him with us. So we were talking about this fourth annual cost of the data breach. How how are companies really responding? You talked about how the government is responding. The VA has really become the poster child for improvement with regard to security breaches. What about the commercial entities? What are they doing? Are they responding well? well? (laughs) I wish I could report something a little bit more favorable. I think some organizations are doing a better job. You know, most organizations have not one, but many breaches. Sometimes these breaches are very small, so notification may be to less than 100 people. And a lot of organizations haven't really figured out how to know about all of these different breaches. So, you know, there could be a a, a regulatory requirement to report, but it requires you to detect the problem first. And so a lot of these breaches happen almost on a daily basis, these real small breaches. The mega breaches, the you know, the Veterans Administration, 26.5 million records, or Heartland, which is a mega, mega breach of yes. 100 million um, records. These things do not happen frequently, and I think some organizations are doing a better job just patrolling their universe. Also, there's new technology, DLP, data loss prevention tools, that really help an organization to identify the wrongful outflow of information. 
and, I, and it's, although it's not a, a, a panacea, it's not perfect, it does seem to uh, identify some of the kind of these mega breach events. And I, I know firsthand there are some companies that came real close to a big data breach, but because they had the right tool, they were able to stop it. You know, Larry, when you talk about the tools, you're talking about technology, but one of the questions that you had in here, one of the the findings in this study was, you said here, more than 88% of all cases in this year's study of the security breach Mm -hmm. involved insider negligence. Yes. So even if you've got this great technology, it gets back to that other study about the human factor again. It's, uh, It's all about the human factor. So you have great technology and maybe good policies, but if people are negligent, there's really no solution. There's nothing that's perfect. Even with DLP, someone can figure out how to download a whole bunch of information on a Radio Shack USB memory stick that you can buy for about $8 or $10, and that little device, that little memory stick, can contain maybe a million records. And if that's lost, if it falls out of your pocket or if a bad guy just captures it, 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 it's, a, it's a huge problem for the company. So technology is not the perfect solution. It's never technology. It's good people, an appropriate process, and good technology. It's the harmony of all three of these that make it work. And, and it's common sense. I have to tell you, I was at this company, and I was doing a program for them on how to pr- you know protect yourself from data breaches. Mm-hmm. And I sat down with one of the top people, and they said, you know, we don't allow USB ports. You can't put one in. And they said, um, you can't put a CD in, you know. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, let me ask you something. Does your staff have access to the Internet? Yes. What about if they used a program like you send it? <laughs> wow. and, 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 and you just, I said, because I do this all the time. Sure. I send I things, and you can send huge files, Larry, absolutely huge files. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter. And I said, well, what do you do? Can, can you do that? And they're going, oh. <laughs> well, we forgot about that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is common sense. So uh, they were so careful. And they're, you know, they're in the financial services industry. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it's a big issue. For example, I, similar story, um, a, a large company, a financial services company, they uh, disengaged the USB um, port to all of their laptop computers through a software application, and people would routinely take their laptop and travel and maybe work from a home office. And when they were not on the network, what they disengaged actually was turned back on. So they thought they had everything, everything was fine. But when you return back to the office, your USB port was actually engaged again, and you can put in a USB memory stick or any kind of Bluetooth technology and capture a whole bunch of information. And no one really caught this until they had a data breach. Oh, no. So these issues, it's the human factor. It's paying attention to those details. But then there's the other issue, too, is you know, no matter what we try to fix with technology today, there'll be a bigger problem in the future. Exactly. <laughs> right? Because people want mobility, and they're going to use their iPod as, and their iPhone as their primary computing device, and everyone craves mobility and the ability to work from a remote location. And that's going to drive the train, and security is probably a couple of steps behind the technology. And the privacy issues, you know, it seems to me that when you're, when you're building this wonderful new technology, at the same time you're building it, you really need to have Larry Poneman sitting there with you. Oh, no. No, yes, you Mari do. Mari Frank, not Larry Poneman. <laughs> Maybe Larry and Mari. <laughs> but no, but seriously, you need to have somebody who builds right into the architecture of the technology, the security and the privacy right then and there. So everybody will brainstorm. I I interviewed recently, and it was a fabulous interview with this guy who invented, he's he's a scientist, and you may have seen him on 60 Minutes, as a matter of fact, but um, he invented this fMRI that can actually read your brain. So you can, yeah, you can actually, you know, read somebody's brain. And and pretty soon we're going to get to the point where someone can really tell what you're thinking. And um, so I asked him about some of the privacy issues, and we talked about them. And, you know, he was so excited about the technology. And here he is at Carnegie Mellon. I said, why don't you use the other professors who are in the privacy area to come in and brainstorm with you? And he he actually liked that idea when I started saying, well, who's going to have access to this? You know, how are you going to collect it? How are you going to store it? How are you going to secure it? All the questions that you would ask, Larry, better than I would. 
And, you know, he didn't have an answer. And well, it know, just, that's, that's getting back to building it into the, the architecture. Yeah, you know, this is, a, this is a common malady, right? You see a lot of technology companies that say, look, privacy and data protection and security is really important, and we'll get to that later. Like, <laughs> after we have a product, we'll figure out how to deal with it. How do they deal with it? They give you a little, like a little laminated card, and it's you know, the, the, the product that's shipped, and this, these are the things you don't do. Uh, <laughs> but I think you're right. I think there is an, an economic opportunity for someone, so perhaps someone in, with an engineering and science degree, to look at the privacy implications of new products. And I remember Barbara Lawler, when she was the chief privacy officer at HP, and, you know, she's a... Uh, She's into it. Near yeah. Her heart. yeah. But but she um she developed a program I recall called Design for Privacy. And I remember HP was implementing um a almost like a checklist of privacy considerations that they would build into all new technologies and it was a requirement probably from their CEO at that time. And I know Scott Taylor is now the chief privacy officer at HP and I think they're continuing to do that. So there are companies that pay attention to these details. And I think at the end of the day, these companies are the winners, right? They're the companies that, can, that will have technologies that will be in demand. Right. Um, and, and, and as we've talked before, privacy is, is something that people value, and it makes the company more trusted. And right? that's what you want, which leads to another study you just did. Wow. How do you like that? We really have a good segue. <laughs> you did a study, and you've done it for several years now, but your yeah. most recent one was for 2008, the most trusted companies for privacy. Why don't you tell us about that study? What what influences a customer's or a consumer's perception of privacy? Well, th- this particular study is an interesting one. It's one of our weird studies. We, we, we are very interested in carrots, not sticks, things that you can look at you know, for a given organization that suggests that that organization is a good steward of the information it collects about you or collects about your family. And so we decided we were going to do a study that allows people to rate organizations based on their belief or their perception that an organization is committed to protecting your privacy. And we also asked the other question, of course, we want to know what organizations are in their mind um, least likely or less committed to protecting your privacy. And so we have the best and worst list. And on the most trusted list, we have organizations in different industries that, for various reasons, get very, very favorable ratings. For example, this year, as in prior years, American Express is number one. And I think the reason why American Express does a good job is that people have a lot of confidence that American Express is going to protect information that's basically part of the business model. It's going to keep you safe and secure. If you're a victim of identity theft, there's the belief that they're going to stand behind you and help you through that process. So, And they are. They are the best. I mean, from all of my experience with victims and trying to deal with American Express, they are clearly the best in helping victims to get through the mess if there is fraud, not only on their card, but if someone has created an American Express card in their name. They're very, very good. You're right. There's yeah, no so, question. So, that, so they, in fact, when when I spoke to their chief privacy officer, um, his view was that um, privacy, it may not be part of their, you know, their, their slogan or logo, but they see it as one of their competitive advantages or a differentiator from other cards um, or other services. So they're, they are a, a true exemplar in my mind. Um, companies like IBM do very well. Um, eBay does extraordinarily well. I think in every study that we've done, they've always been in the top ten. And then there are some organizations that move in and out. You know, sometimes an organization has you know a, a, an event that is uncontrollable. Right. So even though they're a really good, solid company for privacy, they become a victim of bad news or story, and that might reduce their rating. But these some of these companies they kind of fall out of the list, but they come back in because they're consistently good, and they don't really need to remediate, like in the uh, VA scenario that we discussed before. Um, Companies like the U.S. Postal Service as a governmental organization, that that organization gets very, very high marks for privacy. So there's this constant group of organizations, and what they seem to do is they seem to engender trust and confidence in their consumer or the customer or the employee yeah, I, I know you just got here. You got American Express, then you got mm-hmm. eBay, 
Then you have IBM, then mm-hmm. Amazon, Johnson & Johnson, interesting, uh, the U.S. Postal Service, which is has been up there for a few years, hasn't it? Yep. I remember years ago they were horrible, but they have, they have, no, I really, when I was a victim of identity theft back in 1996, I could yep. not get them to stop delivering pre-approved offers and stuff to my, to my imposter's place. Wow. <laughs> but um, they, they, well, they listened. listened to you. They did listen. They did listen. And I think they've done a terrific job in turnaround. And you've got Hewlett Packard and Proc- uh-huh, Procter & Gamble, Apple, Nationwide Insurance, which is the only insurance one in the top here, and Charles Schwab. Yes, yeah, so we have our top ten, and all of these organizations have been rated favorably before. So that's the good news. But take HP. Um, as they're, they're an interesting case study because they uh, achieved very favorable rating this year. You may recall a couple of years ago there was a quasi-privacy story involving their board of directors. Right. And I think their chairman of the board, she was supposedly instituted some form of wiretapping or some kind of a uh, issue about another board member. Right. It was a big story. People lost their jobs as a result. But because of that event, right in the middle of our study, we were collecting negative, not positive, ratings for HP. They didn't actually fall out of the top 20 despite that negative story. And we know that they do a great job for privacy. So it's an example where you may lose your reputation. You may have a reputation hit for a short period of time. But if you're really good, it's not going to kill you. And the flip side is also true. Sometimes organizations show up in the top list, but then they fall out. And they fall out because people recognize that. The privacy commitment wasn't real. I know, Larry, you consult with a lot of companies and you tell them what to do, you know, and help them to Mm -hmm. become more ethical, to be responsible about information management. For those people who are driving by now who are uh, CEOs of companies and they are uh, managers, what should they be doing to improve their trust profile with customers? Well, I think that, you know, we we focus on privacy and data protection issues, but the trust equation is a lot bigger. And it's really about doing what you say you're going to do. If you're delivering a service or a product, it's being consistent or it's exceeding the expectation that people have about you or about the service or product you're providing. Now, specifically around information, because information is becoming more important to people because we are now not one or two steps removed from organizations we deal with, but we're maybe 10 or 11 steps removed. So maybe the only test point, like if we're doing an Internet transaction uh, about whether an organization should be trusted, is their privacy commitment to us. How much data are they collecting about us? How much advertising, annoying and irrelevant ads am I getting as a result of a, of a website interaction? When these things happen, people start to lose confidence and trust. And I think in the world that we're living in, it used to be you walk into a store and you got good service. That was, that was a plus. Bad service, you're never going to go there again. Yes. Now you have a website or, or you know, a combination of website and maybe a telephone call, and you have to rely on very, very few number of cues. And privacy and data protection is something that people are starting to look at. So organizations that want to be successful, especially Internet-based organizations, need to factor privacy and data protection into the equation. And it's also about being respectful. So the advertising that you may need to do shouldn't be irrelevant or annoying, which is interesting because in some sense the targeting of advertising, you know, the the issue of behavioral advertising, which creates another privacy concern for lots of folks, may be an advantage from a privacy perspective because you tell you contact people who you believe are interested, not just getting junk mail as you experience with the post office and I think he said 1996. Another thing that's really important, and I know you did another study, and we were talking about the transparency, that when, you're, when you get back to respect and respecting consumers, respecting them enough to be honest with them and transparent so that if you have an advertisement that's a come on, you don't bait and switch them and, and then charge them all these other fees that they thought they were going to get a good deal and they really aren't. I think that's another thing that really destroys trust for oh, consumers. Oh, it sure does. It drives me crazy. It it sure it sure does. Uh, there's a um, can I talk about a real product? Sure, or, absolutely. Okay, well, let me talk about a product. I'll probably get sued as a result of this. <laughs> I don't worry. Nobody listens but to it's, us. <laughs> it's okay. But it, it really it really upset me. There, there's a gentleman who advertises. He's called the video doctor or something. Yes, uh-huh. video professor. 
and he basically sells a product that he said, if you know, it's free, and just pay for shipping. And um, so um, a member of my family, not going to mention names here, bought a copy of this video professor, it's my mother. And <laughs> <laughs> she won't be listening. And she's 88 years old, so, you know, she gets this. And, but my mom is, you know, no one, no one pulls the wool over her eyes. She's, she's pretty sharp. And so she got this, and she could think it's a bill on her credit card for like $88. And oh, my And it turns goodness. out that she had to return it in order to get it for free. Like there was a little in the fine print. You have to use it for 10 days, and if you don't like it, fine, you return it. But if after 10 days you don't return it, then they go to your credit card and they bill you. And then yes, <sighs> on top of that, they started sending other products to her that she didn't want. <sighs> and so she ended up getting things like on her credit card for two or three different products that – were completely irrelevant. Oh. The moral of that story is that's how you lose trust. Exactly. Because in my mother's case, she probably told a thousand people. <laughs> and she told you, and she now told you're me, telling. And I'm now <laughs> talking to at least a million people are going to hear the story. So, so the key to the, the the story is you don't want to do those things. Right. But trust becomes a very very important issue, and privacy, and respecting people by giving them information that's relevant and important. And not stepping over that line and becoming annoying and irrelevant, that becomes very important. And ethics, you know, look at yeah. the ethics in our country right now. I mean, it just is so depressing when you think about all of the financial managers oh, and Wall Street and everything like that. It is time for us, you know, maybe it's a blessing in disguise, Larry. Maybe it's the time that people need to, to think about ethics and and listen to you because that's what you teach i mean that's something that i've heard you speak about all the time just being respectful and ethical and it's time that we bring ethics back and that you really what you say like you were saying you know don't promise something you're not going to give them be transparent don't do this bait and switch i mean even people who will come to me and say well mari you know for my mediation they'll say well you charge more than others and i go wait a minute i'm very transparent everybody else is going to be charging all these extra fees that you aren't going to know about until you see it on your bill you know it's it's again ask and you have to keep asking that's the problem and you don't always get the answers that you need from these big companies this is a unique time at least in my lifetime and i've been around a long time i I will say that it's really important for people for organizations to get back to some basics here it it is about ethics you know if if you can't explain what you do um, credit swaps and whatever you can't explain it in 10 seconds or less it's probably unethical (laughs) Or there's a problem, and you know we, we, we built so many complexities in our life that it makes it difficult for us to kind of see things as black and white. There are just too many shades of gray, and that leads to problems. And we see it in privacy and data protection, doing what's right, being transparent. It's easy, but organizations, and for whatever reason, we, we, we created these complexities that make it difficult for us to execute an ethical strategy. And I think that's really what our RIM model has, has been all about getting back to basics. Let's develop an ethical strategy for information, information protection, collection, use, security. I think that if organizations did that, it would be beneficial for them, and it would be certainly beneficial for all the stakeholders that rely on this information. Yeah, that's why I think, Larry, you're going to be our our fearless leader here in responsible information management and ethics, because that's what you stand for, and that's why I love you. I love you. Ditto. Love you too. Uh, I'll tell you, it's kind of interesting. It's not about privacy. I mean, although privacy is important, it's really about being an ethical steward when it comes to information. So you could collect information, you could use information, but you do it in a way that's beneficial to people, that you do it in a way that's honest and transparent, and you get permission. You give people the opportunity to opt in or opt out, whatever you want to call it. If you do the basics, it's all going to work out. Right, right. So that leads us to another study, which I think is really interesting, your security of documents in the workplace. And we're talking now about paper documents. Paper. (laughs) You know, this is the thing that drives me crazy. I'll go in and and I'll talk to people about, you know, a privacy audit or I'll do a data protection program Mm -hmm. for them. And they'll tell me about all these great firewalls they have and all this electronic stuff. But then I'll go around and I'll actually be at their offices and I'm seeing things being laid out. I'll see that they have their computers up with sensitive information that anybody can read. I'll see papers, you know, thrown away that 
that anybody could just pick up. And this gets to the issue of, you know, the myth about lost or stolen documents. What is that myth? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, too. From a security perspective, we focus on electronics. I mean, we think, oh, my goodness, that USB memory stick. It could be filled to the brim with millions of records. And it's true. I mean, that's something to worry about. But we forget about the you know, a, a, the document that has all of this personal information that might be in a, in a, in a, in a fax machine, right. about real low-tech stuff, or sitting on a desk. Um, I remember many, many moons ago when I was a partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers, there was a theft of tax information. The cleaning crew walked into the New York City office of the firm, and the cleaning crew probably had a couple of bad guys. And they actually captured tax information yes. that was sitting in a file, in a public file, in a desk. And I think the thing is that we forget that paper could be extremely valuable, not just paper in a dumpster that, you know, the, the, the infamous dumpster diver, but it could be cleaning crews or anyone could basically just pick it up and put it into their briefcase. So it's, it's a problem, and a lot of organizations, quite frankly, have not given this enough thought or effort, um, and it's easy to fix. A shredder is a, is a very inexpensive solution to the problem, and there are other solutions as well. And it seems like this is one of those, you know, the, the, uh, the areas that organizations have great vulnerability, and, 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 and despite all the stories that we hear about, you know, sensitive information being thrown away in the, in the dumpster behind the, you know, behind the store, it's still um, happening. Yeah. It's still it's happening. It's happening every single day. Oh, they just had in the newspaper here about a week ago, and our local Orange County Register had called me because there was um, a mortgage broker, okay, that had just dumped, they moved offices, and they dumped everything into this, uh, an elementary school dumpster. Oh, no. I, all this stuff, you know what I'm talking about. For, sure. for loans, you've got everything, you know, everybody's, uh, social security number, their account numbers, everything in the world, and just dumped it. And you know, not only do we have the Fair Credit Reporting Act that says that you're not that you have to completely destroy information, but we have California law that says that you must destroy when you're discarding. You must completely destroy. So that was uh, real interesting because what ended up happening was the mortgage broker who moved said, "Oh well, I gave it to my." Uh, you know, this company that was supposed to shred it, but they were a recycling company. Of course, he wouldn't say the name of his, his company that he hired so that we could go. <laughs> but then um, apparently well. the newspaper brought a lot of these documents over to the people whose information, um, you know, that, that owned the information, that really were the people who applied for, for loans, and they were oh, outraged. Oh, yes. What, what a terrible story. Now, what happened now, to the business? Did they continue or did well, they go I, under? You know what? I don't know. Well, first of all, mortgage brokers, so that tells you right off. Where, yeah, we know where they are. <laughs> and Yeah, and it'll be interesting because, like I said, this just happened, and they asked me my opinion, and I talked about the different laws that applied and what should be done. And since it's a financial industry, they're even, you know, governed by the, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act and sure. all these different laws that applied and what, what it could mean. But the people were pretty outraged. That should not happen in 2009. It, it is absolutely crazy, and companies aren't paying attention to this detail. It, you know, it happens all the time. For example, we have an office here in Michigan, and one day I see a looks like a, a, a little truck, um, pickup truck, drives in to our building, and we have a dumpster, you know, behind the building. Yes. The guy gets out of the truck, and I'm watching this from our window, you know, from our office. And he goes over to the garbage, and he starts looking at it, and, it, well, we had everything shredded. So <laughs> right. he said, okay, forget it, and he got in his truck, and he drove away. Well, that's when you should have sent your two dogs out there. <laughs> oh, and, and by the way, you're probably hearing them barking right now. So. <laughs> no, I didn't, but I'm saying you should have. That's, that's when you send your, your, your labs out there. your dogs, yes, yeah, but yeah. I'll tell you that. But, it, but this happens all the time. I think yes. there are people that that's their profession. Yes. And they and, probably do pretty well financially. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that people really need to know, at least in, in California, is the way we have interpreted our security breach notification law is this if you have data that once was computerized it can be printed out now sure but if it was once computerized and it is lost or stolen 
you still have that duty to notify. A lot of people don't recognize this. They think only if it's been if it's on a computer or if it's a diskette or something right. actually on an electronic file, but that's not the way we've interpreted it in California. If it once was computerized, then it's still you still have a duty to notify. So you better think about that twice. Yeah, it's information and it's information that in, in the wrong hands could be very, very dangerous to people. So even with or without the, the, the legal right, you have an ethical responsibility as an organization to do something about it. The solution, you go to your Best Buy or, or Walmart, buy a shredder. It's not expensive. And then, and then you can get rid of all that clutter that you have on your desk. So it basically is a win-win for everyone. Yeah, and there's plenty of companies that will come out to your company, you okay. know, whether Iron Mountain or or any of these other, you know, uh, shredding companies, mm-hmm. and they will bring their truck, and their truck will actually eat up the files right in front of you. That's what I do. I hire somebody to come out, and when I have to get rid of the files that have very sensitive information, I it even eats the clips. It goes, chunk, 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 chunk. It, eats, <laughs> it eats everything. It's so great. It makes me feel good that I know that I'm protecting my clients. Now, there's one more study that we can just talk about because we don't have a lot of time. Let's see. We only have just about four minutes. But let's talk quickly about the data loss risks during downsizing because that's such a big thing here. There's so many people who are laid off. Yep. So talk, tell me, do laid off or terminate employees pose a risk to the security of the of the company's data? Yeah, this this is a crazy, another crazy Poneman study. What we What we learned from this study, and it's a U.S. study only, about 59% of people who lost their job in the past 12 months admit to taking some information, company information. Now, I want to make sure you, the, the audience understands it's not necessarily stealing in their mind. I think in the, for, for the people that are taking this information, they think it's kind of theirs. They either created it, it was, or their customer list, or it's not going to be useful to their employer, but it's still 59%. And in that 59%, we actually had observations or, or indication that sometimes it is the, the bad stuff, like a data dump or source code. So people are taking information, and that information can be very, very costly to an organization. So not only are we worrying about the economic crisis that causes the downsizing, but now we have the intellectual property loss that results from downsizing as well. It's a massive problem. Wow. So are the reasons that they justify it, they say, well, I made it or I put together this list? I made this it, list? I created it, I hate my, my former employer, or it's useful to me when I, I get a new job. I mean, because we also ask the question, um, is this information something that you are using if you were, say, reemployed, you found a new employer in the same industry? And in some cases that occurred where, you know, the customer list was useful in my last brokerage position, I'm going to use it in my new brokerage position, even though that's a a violation of law. Right. So we see this issue as being a pervasive problem across different industry groups. And it seems that in the, the, the scale of downsizing, it's, it's, it's just so significant that organizations are unable to deal with this issue using the you know, blocking and tackling technique of looking at what you're taking out in the box or making sure that you know, you're, not, you know, you're not taking a file that's, that, that's not appropriate. A lot of organizations are are losing a lot of information right now, and this could be a, a huge security risk and concern, not only for companies, but also for, the, for our country. Yes. We've only got a minute left. Can you, can you tell our people who are driving by, who own businesses, who are laying off people, what are just a couple things that they can do to protect themselves as they're doing these layoffs? Well, the first thing you want to do is make sure that people that you're going to terminate Make sure that you remove them from your system, that they don't actually have access to systems or emails, um, and you try to do that at the time that they are terminated. You don't want to find an employee you know, a week or two after they're terminated having access to sensitive or confidential information. So revoking privilege is very important, even for a small company. Pay attention to the detail. Like you're probably going to worry about the key the person has to the, you know, to the building. That's important too. But make sure that they don't have access to systems and especially remote access. And changing passwords afterwards. Huh? Changing passwords. Yeah. Just make sure that it's done and and build that into the process. When you're doing an exit interview, make sure people are taking just what they need. You know, the, there are these 
images of people leaving Wall Street with these huge boxes. And what's in these? What are people carrying out the building? You know, the door. Scary. Just, just look at it. Make sure that it is appropriate. And if it's not, you know, you have a right to kill. No, I'm just joking. But, <laughs> and but try and leave on good terms. Leave on good terms. <laughs> Leave on good terms. Well, we have to leave on good terms, too, Larry, because it's time. It's oh, time. wonderful. Well, you are so wonderful. Hour. What fun. We could talk with you for hours, and we will. We will have you back very soon this summer. You are the best, Dr. Larry Kahneman. you're the best. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to KUCI. 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can listen to our archived interviews. You could download podcasts. Write us an email and tell us what you want to know more about, who you want to hear. And thank you so much. Join us every, next Wednesday at 5 o'clock. Good night. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.